0: For everyone with an interest in NASH or, more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up. Season 2, Episode 42 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami starts now.
1: This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami.
2: I got my interest in FGF21, actually, from working with Arun. He was first author on that initial publication, I believe in in Lancet, if I'm not mistaken. It is interesting that potentially not all FGF21s are created equal, but certainly we'll be talking today about huge differences between FGF19 and FGF21, despite the fact that these hormones only have two numbers that separate them. FGF21
0: sounds like an exceptionally efficient way to address NASH. Would that be accurate compared to some of the other modes of action?
3: It is definitely a potentially very exciting way to manage this problem because it gets to the root cause, it reduces fat in the liver, and now we're beginning to see that you might be able to actually improve fibrosis as well. In addition to that, by improving the lipid profile, we expect this will translate into improved cardiovascular outcomes, although we need data, hard data to show that.
1: global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Professor Arun Sanyal as they discuss medicines designed to control fibroblast growth factors, or FGFs, and how they might fit into the future of NASH and NAFLD therapies. This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami.
0: hear this, I'll be on my annual trip to the New Jersey shore for two weeks in August. For those of you who live anywhere on the eastern U.S. seaboard and have never been to Cape May, New Jersey, you need to go sometime. The town has a laid-back vibe that comes from not having an amusement park boardwalk, beautifully maintained Victorian homes, great restaurants, and one of the few places in the eastern U.S. where you can see the sunset in the west over water. If I sound like a travelogue, I'm not, but I did happen to get married there 21 years ago, so I've got really fond feelings for the town. I will be recording there for our next two episodes, as I did last summer. So today's a triple threat. Stephen and Louise both are here, although Stephen's a bit out of town, Prim. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm
2: doing good, Roger. Thank you. Uh,
0: Thank you, and thanks for being able to to get this into your out-of-town schedule. Louise, how are you today?
4: Very well. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, that's great. That's number one. Number two, we have a topic people have been asking for, which is uh, explaining the FGF agents in the 19s and 21s and how they go together. And to help get that done, we have a first-time guest surfer. Not just any guest, but uh, Professor Arun Sanyal. Arun, how are you today? I'm very well. Thank you. On, On the one hand, I think you certainly need no introduction. On the other, our listeners like to get to know the people they're listening to. So could you do us a favor, just take a couple of minutes, tell us about yourself, you know, the work you do and your background and all that, and then wrap up with one fact about yourself that our listeners wouldn't know if they weren't listening to the podcast.
3: Ha! Well, my name is Arun Sanyal, as you already probably now know. I am a hepatologist at Virginia Commonwealth University and have been interested and involved in the study of fatty liver disease now for almost three decades. My claim to fame, I guess, initially was making the linkage between Insulin resistance and NASH, and subsequently, I have chaired the NASH Clinical Research Network, which is a network run by the NIH, and have been involved in many aspects of research related to NASH. And I've collaborated with Stephen over many, many projects over the last two decades.
2: Yeah, but let me say, Arun, you're being way too modest. Arun is literally the king of NASH. We're all just princesses that are serving alongside Arun. He has taught me more about NASH than I'll ever learn, and he he is a big reason why I went into the field. So it is a tremendous honor to have you on as part of our, our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen.
3: Well, I guess that's what you would not have known if you were not on this podcast.
0: But, well, the, you're the king of You, you got to do better than that.
3: I'm the Maharaja of Nash. Maybe that'll be
0: better. There you go. <laughs> if, if it makes you feel any better, Mazanuruddin once described Stephen as the Duke of Drugs. As the
3: Duke of Drugs. Okay.
0: Yeah. So we have royalty in many forms around here. Stephen has two titles, but you, you, I think it's fair for you to be the king. I think that's appropriate. well-earned. Yes. Arun, we're delighted, just delighted to have you here. So thank you so Likewise. much. Likewise. With that, here's the one thing that people would know depending on where they live in the world. But, but Arun and I were talking about this last week. The two countries in the world that have the most interesting and advanced medical policy on NASH right now, depending upon how you look at it, are either India or England. And Arun is integrally involved with a lot of the work that goes on in India. You want to take just a second and talk about some of that, please, sir? Yeah.
3: India, interestingly enough, is one of the first countries in the world to have a policy... A national policy related to fatty liver disease, beginning to integrate it with type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease to take a more holistic approach to the problem. You know, one of the things we lose sight of is the fact that type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, diabetes-related blindness, and even neurocognitive decline, which in simply simple words is sort of age-related mental dysfunction, many of these things are actually linked to common biology, which of course also occurs in people with fatty liver disease, and it's all happening in the same patient. So while the medicine and the knowledge has developed in a siloed fashion across multiple specialties, they all come together in the same patient. So in a patient-centric way, we need to think about the burden of diagnostic testing and therapeutics and try to find ways to make it easier for the patient, not only to find the treatment that they need, but also to to reduce the overall burden of medical care, and that includes diagnostics as well as therapeutics. This is a big part of the focus. There are statewide programs also going on in India, such as one in West Bengal, with a big focus on rural populations whose needs are rather different than urban populations that may not be applicable in the West to the same degree. But I'd love to hear Louise or somebody else's experiences about what's
0: happening in the UK. Okay, so Louise, why don't you take a second and do that and then we'll jump
4: in. It's slightly different for me. I'm not in mainstream. NHS anymore. What we are trying to do is get a little bit more coordinated with the pathways and I think we discussed Jeff Lazarus's article the other week showing some really good examples of healthcare and processes for NAFLD and NASH and then last week we had the report by the British Liver Trust that basically showed that less than 40% of any of the primary care areas actually use any form of pathway at all so although we can highlight excellent practices in six or seven really good areas And I said it on the podcast with that those areas have developed from liver units so highly specialized units with an entire team who can put this in it's not just implementing it because you can have access to it which i think it sounds like the indian mechanism might be more fitting for putting in new processes so we've still got a long way to go but we are getting there we just need to share that practice or have other people invest in what's seen as really good practice because it saves money and helps patient pathways so that's where our strength is we've shown that it works but only in small
0: areas. We're going to leave this subject for today because we've got lots of ground to cover, but it should be noted we are going to come back to this again. I'd like to start spending more of our time. There's been a really good response, I think, to the last, well, to, to Jeff's episode, and people are excited about the episode that will be posted on Wednesday about the multidisciplinary call to action. So we're going to be coming to these kinds of topics, and I think looking at India in particular, and the UK second for the reason Louise just mentioned, the spread between having good processes and then getting them implemented are one of the things we're going to be spending some time on in the next few months. and hopefully. Run, you'll come back and join us for some of that. Louise, I usually know where to find you, particularly if this is good, good football to talk about. With that, why don't we jump into today's usual icebreaker, just one good thing that's happened in each of our lives in the past week. Brave one, go first.
2: I'll go first. So I'm spending the last couple of weeks with my daughter before she leaves for college and we're empty nesters finally. Again, following in Arun's footsteps, we, we spent the weekend experiencing a, a time on the lake, surfing and that sort of thing. And her boyfriend and her were able to get up on a single surfboard together, which was an amazing sight to see two young adults uh, surfing on the same surfboard behind a boat. I thought that was pretty amazing. And then professionally, I've never been in, in a study myself for liver disease, but I am in one today. I got my own PDFF done, and based on the results of that, hopefully I don't have too much fat in my liver, but we'll see. Then I'll embark on a little proof-of-concept study. I need to talk to Arun about it more mechanistically about what we're doing, but I'm excited to see uh, some good results come out of it.
0: So, Stephen, all I can say is I hope that the read on your PDFF is a little bit more supportive and upbeat than your initial read on my liver the first time you fiber scanned
2: it. Oh, well, I'm hopeful, but I gained the COVID-15, so who knows?
0: For those who don't know this story, uh, Stephen got a little bit green in the face, is he looked at me and asked me if I thought I might need a liver transplant and then they realized that they were taking pictures of my ribs.
4: There's a reason nurses do that, predominantly not doctors.
0: <laughs> Amen.
4: Amen.
0: This is one of his people. I just happened to have large ribs or it was a bad day. Not sure which. Okay, uh, Louise, everyone, somebody go ahead.
4: Um, I'll jump in next. I suppose my good event for the week is that my youngest is playing Ultimate Rugby Sevens. He's part of an elite GB team. So they've got to meet in person for the first time and we're going to watch the tournament Wednesday because they're on camp for three Three days now that's the first real event that real people have met together for rugby for oh, over 12 months now so I'm quite excited to go and watch him and support him with my husband.
0: Fantastic. Aaron, you want to
4: go next? Yeah, I just found out that the quarantine
3: in Nepal has been relaxed a little bit and that it is possible with a negative COVID test and a vaccine and a post-arrival COVID test to dodge a 10-day quarantine and be able to go on a trek. So there is a trek that my son and I were planning to do. It's supposed to be a father-son event around the Kokyo Lakes, which are at the base of the Everest. So it's on in
0: October.
2: That's fantastic. Fantastic! Very exciting. And that might be a fact many people don't know about a room.
3: Yeah, I'm a little crazy. I do weird things like jumping off mountains and...
0: What's going on track. You know, if you wanted to elaborate, you might beat Jeff Lazarus running with the bulls for the most interesting human trick on the podcast. But we'll save that for next time of year. We can do that. So mine's really prosaic by comparison. We have a local playhouse here, which is one of the more renowned local regional playhouses in the U.S. It grew up in the 1930s with Oscar Hammerstein and the Algonquin Roundtable in New York and has a rich history. Robert Redford played here. Grace Kelly played here. Dick Van Dyke played here. I go on and on and on. At any rate, every year as part of their fundraiser, they do a private cabinet where they go to the home of the producing director, which is this magnificent place with remarkable acoustics in the living room, and they do a private cabaret, where they get a cabaret singer from New York to come down and entertain 15, 20 people. We were fortunate enough to have the winning bid last year, and that was Friday night. And the entertainer was a woman named Carter Calvert, who has played on Broadway and was the national tour Grisabella and Cats and a few other things, and is a fantastic artist. And to listen to somebody with this kind of voice and this kind of range in that kind of room with all of 12 of you, or 15 of you, is just I, not an experience I've had before in my life. I spent the whole night with my job and it was pretty amazing. So with that, since we're try- managing everyone's schedule, let's just go on. So here's what we're doing today. Last spring, background, in in relatively short space of time, we talked about the withdrawal of one FGF-targeted agent, the FGF-19 aldefermin, all from not going ahead in a phase three trial for advanced NASH. The success of the FGF-21 Afroxyfermin in its phase 2 a balance trial, which Stephen was the author on when it published, I guess, in Nature last month. And then some exciting, very early data about Afroxyfermin and compensated cirrhosis. And I I was getting, phone, first of all, congrats to Steven, who served as the PI on both trials. But second, I was getting letters, phone calls, and queries about, can someone explain to me what this FGF thing is about? So today we're going to do that. Fortunate enough to have a run with us, as well as Steven. I can't think of two better people to teach. First of all, just a high level of summary of what we're learning about afroxifermin, and then some review of the differences between 19 and 21, and then differences between how the construction of the different FGF21 agents might lead to different results, and if we have time, to go back and take a look at what the 2B design for MK3655, the FGF compound that Merck. License from NGM can tell us about that compound and ways to think about the future of that entire mode of action. So that's a lot. We're going to try to get it all done in about 40 minutes. Stephen, why don't you kick us off by talking a little bit about the two trials, maybe the 2A balance first and then the cohort C
2: second. Sure. So thank you for the kind words relative to the balance trial. So this is, a you know, it's interesting, Efruxafirmin, which is the, the commercial name for... Akeros FGF21 agonist was studied in an early proof of concept study with about 80 patients. And MRIs were done at the beginning. They were done at week 12. And if patients achieved a 30% relative reduction in liver fat, they were offered a liver biopsy. And the liver biopsy was really done to, to see what the correlation between a reduction in liver fat and histology was. Because there's a lot of background work done by Rohit Lumba and others looking at that this magnitude of effect change in liver fat is quantified by MRI PDFF, linking a 30% relative reduction in fat to a benefit histopathologically. And so it's an early study. It's a proof of concept trial. Like I mentioned, 80 patients were enrolled and it turned out the primary endpoint was change in liver fat content and treatment with fruxifermin for 12 weeks was associated with a reduction of absolute hepatic fat content from 12 to 14% for all all doses. Maybe intriguing to me was the fact that every single patient treated with a fruxafermin had at least a 30% relative drop in liver fat with about 90% having a greater than 50% reduction in liver fat, and about 67% or two-thirds completely normalizing their liver fat. And of course, those patients who achieved that 30% relative reduction in liver fat went on to have liver biopsies, and we see there some meaningful changes, impactful changes on histopathology, both in terms of improvement in components of the NAFLD activity score, but maybe more importantly, the impact that it had. On fibrosis. Again, it's an early phase trial that needs to be replicated and validate a larger trial, and that is currently underway now, and that's enrolling patients in a much larger phase to be paired liver biopsy study. Cohort C, just moving straight to that, was an added cohort looking at well-compensated cirrhotic patients. Again, treated for this short period of time with an opportunity to have a repeat liver biopsy. Now, not all patients uh, were required to undergo a repeat liver biopsy. It was voluntary, but most of them chose to do that. And we presented that data at EASL recently. And again, very nice findings relative to liver fat content reduction, but maybe the most striking finding was the fact that about a third of patients actually had regression of fibrosis from a well-compensated cirrhotic state to something less than cirrhosis. And and given the issue with sampling variability and inter and intra-observer variability in reading, we wanted to look at some additional non-invasive tests to support and substantiate the histopathologic changes. And there were very positive movements in multiple different NITs to support something positive happening in these cirrhotic patients. Again, uh, nothing more than to say a very early proof-of-concept trial, but a very positive one for this Group of patients who are at incredible unmet medical need for for their liver disease to be able to take a Nash cirrhotic and stabilize that disease or maybe even potentially begin to reverse it is something that we sorely need and uh, we're excited to see where this may be heading as a result of that trial there is now also a phase two b trial in well compensated cirrhotics that is being put together and hopefully launched. In the near future with a caro using a fruxafermin. That's the results. The intriguing part of this is the significant reduction in liver fat that occurs very quickly. And you know, I got my interest in FGF-21 actually from working with Arun, who spearheaded Bristol Meyer Squibbs' FGF 21 development program early on. And uh, he was first author on that initial publication, I believe in, in Lancet, if I'm not mistaken. But it is interesting that potentially not all FGF21s are created equal, but certainly we'll be talking today about huge differences between FGF19 and FGF21, despite the fact that these hormones only have two numbers that separate them. So I think I'll end there and and maybe see where you want to take this relative to potential physiology of the FGF21 compound and how you want to dive into that.
0: All right. So Stephen, first, thanks. That was very crisp and clear and and a really helpful description. The original plan was to go next to run to talk a little bit about the differences between 19 and 21, and then to come back and talk about the physiology and construction of the different 21 agents. So, Run, if you're still comfortable doing that one first, floor's yours, or Mike's yours. Sure.
3: So, you know, the FGFs are a family of cytokines. Uh, cytokines mean that they're being produced by different cells. These are chemicals being released, and we classify FGFs based on whether they act on the same cell that produces them. Those are intracrine FGFs. Then there are paracrine FGFs, which work on adjacent cells. And then there are endocrine FGFs, which are released into blood and then carried to distant sites and act on distant organs. So here, what we're talking about are the endocrine FGFs. And so in the endocrine FGFs, you have FGF 21 and 19 are two of the principal endocrine FGFs. The principal difference between FGF 21 and FGF 19 from a clinical point of view, it relates to the type of receptors they bind. So for FGFs to do anything, they have to bind to their receptor on cells. Now they require two receptors, one's called beta clotho and the other one is called FGF receptor. Now for FGF21 to work, it has to bind FGF receptor 1 as a minimal requirement along with beta-clotho. And actually the Merck compound, the NGM313, is a FGF receptor 1 beta-clotho analog. Now the other FGF21s can bind not only FGF1 but also FGF2 and 3 to varying degrees but they do not bind to FGF receptor 4. So that's where FGF-19 comes. in. FGF-19 can bind to FGF receptor 4. That's what principally distinguishes the FGF-21 biology from FGF-19 biology. The second principal difference is that the FGF-21 is principally a hepatokine. That is, it is produced in the liver and can be released. It can also be made in adipose tissue and it can be released into circulation. FGF-19, on the other hand, is released from the intestine after bile acids bind to a receptor called FXR in the intestine. And the largest amount of FGF19 in the body comes from the intestine and is released into the intestinal outflow, uh, that is the circulatory outflow. And this is important because this brings it straight to the liver. The liver is the first organ that sees all of the blood that is draining the intestine because that's where it carries the nutrients. And then FGF19 has a principal effect on the liver where it has the FGF receptor 4, which gives it the hepatic specificity, whereas FGF21, which binds mainly to 1, 2, and 3, along with beta-clotho, can uh, not only affect the liver, but can affect fatty tissue, can affect bones, can affect, you know, and, and also very importantly, the brain. So, uh, Raja, I think that's sort of, unless you want to know more, I can keep going, <laughs> but I, I think that, that that's a good place to start.
0: Stephen. if you wanted to amplify, and Louise, let me do Stephen first. I think you want to amplify on that, and then... Yeah. I think I think that was
2: terrific. I just was a, a nice summary, just backing up a little bit, it's important for our audience to realize how fat gets in the liver. I don't think we've really been through that much on the podcast. And I think it's apropos to this discussion. So majority of fat coming into the liver is happening because of stick adipocytes. Stick adipocytes undergoing lipolysis, releasing free fatty acids that get taken up by the liver predominantly. And second most common is de novo lipogenesis and, and Third most common is through nutrition. And that's relevant to this discussion on FGF21, particularly and FGF19, particularly through the binding of FGFR1C. Beta clotho. So, this idea that we're binding the FGF1 receptor, its activity is in the adipocyte predominantly. So, by modulating that, you can theoretically have a major impact on fat inside the liver. And we see that FGF19 aldefermin binds 1 and 4, whereas most of the FGF21s bind 1 and then to very vari- variable degrees 2 and 3, which Maybe, Arun, you can talk to two and three a little bit about maybe where they're predominantly located and what their effects are. That actually is one of the bigger differences between why there are potentially variances in how these FGF21s work a little bit, how effective, how potent they are. But quite frankly, the, the major impact of liver fat content reduction, specifically how we saw absolute reductions of 12 to 14% with the fruxafermin in the balance paper, was it I think impacted mainly through its binding to the 1C receptor. So I just wanted to throw that out there as just a little added piece of information.
0: Arun, you want to comment on the difference between 2, th- 3, and 4, Stephen suggested?
2: Yeah. So 3
3: and 2 are expressed in other organs. There's not a whole lot known. 2 is not very well characterized from a pharmacology point of view, but the 3 is also expressed in the brain. So, for example, if you bind to 1 and 3 in the brain, Actually has been shown to reduce your desire for sweet food and increase your protein intake. So, you know, your choice of food, it can affect what you crave and what you desire to eat, uh, for example. So, but I think from a biological perspective, one is really important because of its expression in adipose tissue, as Stephen mentioned. And what it does there is that it turns on this secondary hormone that the fat tissue makes called adiponectin. Now, adiponectin is critically associated with maintaining insulin sensitivity sensitivity. So it keeps the tissue sensitive to insulin. And then when your adiponectin levels normally fall in obesity and in insulin-resistant states, then your cells are no longer responding to insulin. So by increasing adiponectin, it improves insulin sensitivity. When you become more sensitive to insulin, for any given level of insulin, you're more likely to drive the fat into the fat tissue rather than out of the fat tissue. Now, you may say that doesn't make any sense. In a disease with obesity, why would you want to do that? It is because when you drive fat out of the adipose tissue, the fat has to go somewhere. And one of the big metabolic defects that occurs is that you're unable to oxidize that fat appropriately. So you can't burn it in your muscles appropriately. So the liver is the next organ that accepts fat. And so you end up delivering a very large amount of fat to the liver, which then creates a metabolic stress on the liver and triggers the sequence of events that we recognize as NASH. So, this also opens up the possibility that if you could modulate this metabolic capacity to burn fat in muscle tissue in the fasted state, you might have another mechanism by which you could reduce delivery of excess fat to the liver. Now, the development of insulin resistance in the liver has a second effect through the muscle because when you become insulin resistant in the muscle, you not only are unable to burn that excess fat, but you also are unable to take up glucose from the circulation. Normally when you eat a sugar load, that extra sugar is cleared from your blood by muscle. And if you're unable to do that, all that extra sugar is delivered to the liver and sugar is the substrate for de novo lipogenesis. So you get a double whammy. First, you're getting lots of fat delivered. And number two, you get a lot of sugar delivered to the liver. The third clinical implication of this is that when you are moving fat from your adipose tissue masses into the circulation, but you cannot burn it and you're delivering it to the liver... At certain point, you saturate the liver's ability to take it up, but a lot of that extra fat returns to the fat tissue. So the patient is unable to mobilize that fat and unable to lose weight. So they'll tell you, I'm trying to exercise, but I'm not losing weight. How often have we heard that? And it's a common mistake for physicians to then claim that the patient is lying, they're being lazy. But the truth is, if you are really metabolically resistant to the uh, actions of insulin, that leads to this inability to mobilize fat because the fat that does come out of the fat stores cannot be burned. So it goes back into the fat tissue or it goes into the liver to create fatty liver disease.
2: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I just wanted one thing to add to that since you were speaking about adiponectin. Juan Frias presented at the recent ADA some follow-up data from the BALANCE trial. Looking specifically at adiponectin and just the conclusions of that, I'm pulling his last slide up now, increases in adiponectin correlated strongly with improvements in lipid and lipoprotein profiles, as well as markers of insulin sensitivity and glucose metabolism and reduction in biomarkers of liver cell injury and hepatocyte stress, as well as liver fibrosis. So, that speaks to to your point a bit more directly.
3: Yeah, uh, and Stephen, as you know, I've been a great protagonist from day one. That the best way to reduce scarring in the liver is to treat the root cause. And if the root cause is delivery of excess sugar and poisonous fats to the liver, reducing those is the best way to reduce everything that happens downstream. But the FGF twenty ones have an additional effect that is directly in the liver. When you deliver excess fat to the liver, you trigger something called ER stress or stress to the endoplasmic reticulum, which causes an unfolded protein response. FGF21 can actually be produced as a consequence of unfolded protein response, but it basically impacts many of the pathways that drive inflammation and oxidative stress. So there is yet another layer of direct effects within the liver beyond what you're seeing in the adipose tissue, et cetera, that contribute to the beneficial effects of FGF21s.
0: That makes FGF21 sound like an exceptionally efficient way to address NASH. And that it addresses many different issues in many different places. Would that be accurate compared to, say, some of the other modes of action that we take a look at?
3: I can take a shot at that. It is definitely a potentially very exciting way to manage this problem because it gets to the root cause, it reduces fat in the liver, and now we're beginning to see that you can might be able to actually improve fibrosis as well. In addition to that, by improving the lipid profile, we expect this will translate into improved cardiovascular outcomes. All Although we need data, hard data to show that. So all of those are on the plus side. On the negative side is the fact that it's an injectable. And, you know, there is at least a theoretical worry that over time, as you keep injecting, you may get tachyphylaxis, you could get antibodies developing to the molecule. Now, you could argue that this is all theoretical. Nobody's actually shown this as a real phenomenon. And I'll say that I'll absolutely accept that. But it's something that as a academic clinician with a research interest in the area, we're always looking to see where the minefields are right so that we can avoid them and so other than that i think this is looking very very good
0: louise do you have a question or or anything you want to add
4: just really enjoying listening to these two guys making it sound understandable because sometimes i read these pieces and it just goes way over with the science but the one thing i was just thinking of there you when you were talking about the fgf receptors is there a difference in these with different ethnicities and the breakdowns, when you described you can trigger sugar cravings or you, you can address some of that with them. Is there any work done on do we have different types or different numbers? That's a stupid question, I know, but I just wondered. That is a fantastic
3: question. I got to tell you that I am not aware of anyone having done an in-depth race-by-race you know something that's really, truly very rigorous. There's some data that the FGF 21 response in African-Americans may be less than in Caucasians. I remember seeing that at some point some years ago, but I'm not aware of recent literature doing a sort of a systematic in-depth analysis of this. There's probably more data on comparing primates to humans than within human by race or ethnicity.
2: Yeah, I agree. You know, the other thing that's interesting about the These compounds. And I agree, it's this preliminary data is incredibly exciting. But if we step back for a moment and look at it, we only have liver biopsy data with FGF 21s right now in about 50 patients that have been reported. Right. So there's still a significant amount of data that we need to generate over a longer period of time to really have a clear understanding of what this mechanism is doing to the liver, and then extrahepatically what it's doing outside of the liver. And one of the things that I'm big on as we develop drugs for NASH is that we're not so myopic that all we focus on as hepatologists is parenchyma of the liver. You know, I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that this is a symptom of a much bigger metabolic problem that the patients are going through. And so if we can have a drug that targets some of these extra hepatic manifestations of metabolic syndrome, that's going to have a much better impact at the end of the day. So we want to hit the liver. We want to see what we can do outside of the liver. And at least what we've seen with some of these FGF21s, we're doing that. And infruxifermin is a good example. But I think with anything else, the juice is worth the squeeze, the view is worth the climb. And while if this early data holds up, we have a drug that appears to be effective histopathologically as well as positive impacts on atherogenic lipids, glycemic control, potentially even blood pressure and weight loss. It does come at a premium, and that is an adverse event profile that has some GI tolerability with it that will have to be mitigated. And then, as Arun mentioned, it's an injective. So this is typically given in a group of patients that don't usually have a lot of symptoms. Now, I know there's work being done to illustrate that patient's quality of life is not what it would be if they didn't have NASH. But as a general rule, people don't walk in to my clinic saying, I think I have NASH because I have X, Y, and Z symptoms. They generally, for the most part, don't really feel that much different than their family members or in anybody else. So if we're going to give them a treatment for a long period of time, we need to make it something ultimately that can be well tolerated. And so if we're going to use these injectables, we begin to have to think about, are we going to use them as induction therapy and then switch them over to something that's better tolerated long haul? Or is this more targeted to an advanced population? I think these are some of the unanswered questions with this particular mechanism of action.
0: Stephen, I want to walk back to that one in a minute. First question, question I have is because the different FGF21 agent, agents currently in, in trial seem to have somewhat different ways of delivering FGF21 to the system. Can we talk a little bit about that and about how those might affect the efficacy or exactly the impact of, of one agent versus another? We've been talking so far only about Fruxifermin, but there are other things out there.
2: There's a couple things at play here. Number one is FGF21 is a very short half-life, like it's measured in hours. So if you want to extend that half-life, you have to do something to keep to keep the 21 around. And so different companies are modulating FGF21 in different ways. Some are adding a peg molecule, polyethylene glycol molecule. Others are undergoing fusion protein. This is what FGF21 does. Others are incorporating specific point mutations as well. But that's part of the issue. The other part is the potency that these drugs have against FGFR1, FGFR2 and FGFR3. I'm not not sure that each of them have equivalent potency, although again these head-to-head trials haven't been done, and I'm not sure we fully understand the nuances of that. But I think it's really those two issues are at play here. But I'd love to hear Arun's thoughts. Stephen, I agree with you.
3: In addition, I would say that when you change the configuration of the molecule, its ability to penetrate the brain may change. And we know that some FGF 21s may affect cortisol levels. And there are other other FGF21s that have an effect on sympathetic outflow from the brain, which could be good or it may not be good because on the one hand, increased sympathetic outflow to the adipose tissue leading to browning of the adipose tissue could lead to more efficient energy disposal and burning of the fat in the adipose tissue. But on the other hand, if you have increased sympathetic outflow on a long-term basis, at least theoretically, you could imagine that it might set you up for hypertension or CKD or other kinds of things. So, And I'm not even sure how much of that data that have been derived in my are translatable into humans. But again, I think the variance in the different molecules in terms of their structure, in terms of how their half-life has been extended by adding linker molecules and the degree of penetration into different organ systems. Brain is one of the best examples because we have a blood-brain barrier that FGF21 has to cross. And then it's agonism for receptor one versus two versus three. And the ratio of all of that leads to many, many permutations that can result from one molecule to the other in terms of the net biology that flows downstream.
0: uh, Arun, is there a strong existing hypothesis about which is better and which is um, less good, let's say?
3: FGF receptor 1 binding is clearly an important part. And FGF receptor 4 provides liver specificity. So those two, I think we have good data on. The impact of 2s and 3s, I think, are a little more open-ended. But it may be that some combo could have a little bit better effect than others. One of the mechanisms of action that have emerged from preclinical studies is that the brain sends out these signals through nerves called the sympathetic nervous system that cause the adipose tissue to burn fat without turning it into ATP so that excess energy is released and you essentially can start getting rid, mobilizing your adipose tissue and getting rid of the extra fat. Whether that actually happens in humans and to what what degree it explains the overall biology of adiponectin, I think remains a fairly contested uh, subject. Clearly, there are direct effects of adiponectin, uh, direct effects of FGF21 on the adipose tissue that are linked to its uh, stimulation of adiponectin that also seem to be quite important. And as Steve mentioned, the recent data from humans, again, suggests that these direct effects on adipose tissue may actually be quite important. So between picking the brain or the adipose tissue, my personal bias is that the adipose tissue effects are probably more relevant.
0: I I do have one more question. And Arun, you and I talked about this briefly before the podcast, which is that... We talk about FGF 21 as being short half-life, fast acting acute drug. And then you come up on the uh, design for uh, the MK3655 trial, right? The m- molecule they license from NGM, which is a sub-Q dose. It's a 28-day dosing. And it looks to be targeted at a very different use. And I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how the molecule is different and what that logic is and with, whether it is what it appears to me to be. Well,
3: least. it's primarily working through FTF receptor one and beta clotho, And so it has a a significant extrahepatic profile of action. And uh, there's very strong preclinical data that by having a pure FGF receptor 1C and a Beta-clotho effect. It is modifying adiponectin, uh, and in preclinical models, including primates, it has shown quite a remarkable defatting and improvement and suppression of uh, you know lipolysis. Interestingly, in the fasted state, it has also suppressed endogenous glucose production, which is largely a hepatic you know function. So its effects are not only in the adipose tissue, but there is an effect at the level of the liver as well because. The endogenous glucose production is, by and large, a function of hepatic gluconeogenesis. So there are other compounds also. What is common between all many of these FGF9 is that they all sort of tend to increase adiponectin, the ones that have been shown to, you know, there there are compounds that were developed by Lilly, there were other compounds that have been developed by Pfizer, uh, etc. There appears to be an effect, at least in the human studies, on the adiponectin liponectin, which is a big part of this story. For the MK3655, what is also remarkable is that if you look at the glucose disposal rate, which is the removal of glucose from circulation, it it almost has the same level that you see with the classical insulin sensitizer like pioglitazone. So this basically is showing that it's improving insulin resistance. And a lot of that insulin resistance is muscle mediated, like I talked about. It reduces hepatic fat and also it is improving adiponectin. So target organs include adipose tissue, muscle, and the liver for sure. And again, because the ability to suppress after a single dose, one of probably what big separator over here is that after a single dose if you went out to uh, day th- up to day 36 you can see a up to 34 35% reduction in hepatic fat that in my view is pretty remarkable so it I would be very interested to see as the histology trial rolls out that uh, what are the final results how these translate into improved histology
0: so- Stephen, Louise, I'm wondering if you have questions or things to add, and then we'll go on to final question because we're kind of getting to the end of our session today.
4: I had a question to add when I read the paper, Stephen. It was I think we've discussed on the podcast considerably about failure rates and the difficulties of recruiting to trial. Was there a particular difficulty recruiting to this because the failure rate was very high. Was it COVID-induced? Was there something specific? I think 267 of screen failed out of 356.
2: Yeah, that's the problem we have with every trial in Nash the screen fail rates are running around 70 to 80% and it's higher it's closer to the 80% when you have to go through three different gates to get approval for randomization so those gates are very simply you sign consent you draw labs and you can screen fail at that point. You go to MRI, you can screen fail at MRI, and then you go to liver biopsy, and you can screen fail there. When you add each of those screen fails up, it actually comes out to 70 to 80 percent. So I don't think it's anything unique to this particular mechanism of action. It's just how we design the trials. Remember, we can use FibroScan CAP as a pre-screen modality for MRI, and we've done very well at reducing screen fail rates on MRI down to around 15 to 20 percent. And we've done pretty good at our baseline screen fail rate on labs and consent. That comes in around 20 to 25%. Where we've had our biggest hiccup is on liver biopsy interpretation, saying yes, no, particularly to the presence or absence of ballooning. And Arun and I could talk for another three hours about the complexity surrounding that. But as it is as long as we have a histopathologic requirement for entry into trials, our screen fail rates are going to remain relatively high. It's unfortunate, but that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. I have to admit, I
0: usually listen to episodes three times to get them edited. I have a feeling I'm going to have to listen to this one six times to understand it. But and that's a good thing. So let me leave two final questions hanging out there. And, and Arun, thank you. This has been having you has been a, a, an honor and a treat and a pleasure and all those things at once. Final question. Pick the one you want to answer. Either, how do you believe FGF, the normal question, by the way, is what have you heard in the last hour that surprised you or may have changed how you thought about anything? But the second question here is, how do you believe FGF-21s will be used five to seven years from now? What might be approved in that time and what do you expect the utilization to look like? A brave one, go first.
3: So the way I see it is that the future of the field is in a more integrated and holistic view of fatty liver disease combining cardiovascular morbidity, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, etc., all together under a larger umbrella of metabolic ill health and trying to find therapies where a single agent can improve multiple end organs simultaneously. And keeping that concept in mind, we know that GLP-1s Have already been shown to improve in type type 2 diabetics with high risk features, all cause mortality, cardiovascular outcomes, etc. Chronic kidney disease as well. SGLT2 is not far behind them, although their cardiovascular benefit profile is a little different than GLP1s. And so, if you look at the practice guidelines for type 2 diabetes, they're already changing, and GLP1s and SGLT2s are becoming much more mainstream than they used to be. And I suspect that if the GLP1s semaglutide data readout. Positive on their phase three. A lot of people who manage patients with fatty liver disease are going to do an initial triage and identify people who are stage three or less than stage three. And if it's less than stage three, they'll get treated with a metabolic drug. And, you know, if FGF21 also eventually shows all the benefits of GLP-1s, then we'll have to see which one comes out ahead. But right now, based on the evidence that we have today, GLP-1s would be your starting drug for that population. Now, it may be that if GF21s show a significant antifibrotic benefit, then for people who are stage 3, who are on the verge of getting into cirrhosis or those who already have compensated cirrhosis, in that population, you may start with a combination where you would have a drug which has significant antifibrotic effect on top of a drug that is a very potent metabolic drug. So that's how I see things playing out in the future. It will be combos, one size will not fit all. For early stage disease, a metabolic drug, for people at the cusp of progression, combos. And for those who already have cirrhosis, maybe primarily an antifibrotic drug, but then using metabolic drugs to maintain remission once
2: you achieve remission.
0: thank you. That's really clear and that's really fantastic. And again, thanks for, being, for having joined us today. Stephen, why don't you go next?
2: Yeah, well, with, with a wrap-up like that, there's really not a lot to add. You said everything I would have said. The only thing I would add to that, and that is a big asterisk behind uh, these FGF21s, is their impact on fibrosis. I mean, if the data we've seen from the balance trial and cohort C hold up that makes this compound a game changer just because of its ability to modulate fibrosis. That would potentially put it ahead of a, of a GLP-1, assuming that it also has continued impact on glycemic control and atherogenic lipids. But everything else, and, and so I agree with everything. I just wanted to add that little comment on fibrosis.
0: Okay, thanks. Louise, comment, question?
4: I just enjoyed listening to these two guys smash it and on the discussion and really enjoyed it. And I think the only thing I was going to add to that was as we go out into the future, I think the mechanism of delivery won't be dissimilar to viral hepatitis C in the fact that a lot of patients with hep C had no symptoms and we had to convince them and support them into interferon therapies. There is a lot of strength in hepatology whereby we can deliver those sort of mechanisms in patients if it's as exciting as it sounds looking at the side effect profile and everything so far it's a very good product and i can't wait to see the next sets of the trials so keep smashing it
0: <laughs> amen to that i think my one sentence takeaway is not having appreciated all of the different ways that an fgf 21 has the ability to act against the the total range of metabolic disease and as a result how valuable it might be in a holistic context i don't think i'd fully appreciated that before today and thank you very very much for, if for nothing else, and there are nine other things, but for enlightening me and hopefully some of our other listeners on that point, because I think that's really important. Thank you. So with that, please come back anytime. And we were talking a little bit about coming back to talk about India some, which will be great. As far as the rest of it goes, let me say thanks to Steve and, and to Louise and to her. Let me let you folks go. I'll come back and do the business section after you're gone, because we all have busy days and we're about three minutes behind schedule right now. So thank you so much, all of you.
2: All right. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you,
0: everybody. See everybody. Talk to you later. Okay. Take
2: care.
3: Bye.
0: As we shift into the business section, we are still in the slower days of summer. Still, we have a couple of interesting items to report.
1: Continuing today's theme of interesting, important drug development discussions.
0: No, we will not have Dr. Sanyal back next week. We will have Stephen and Jorn Schottenberg covering a very important topic, cirrhosis. We will look at what makes it both imperative and challenging to develop cirrhosis drugs what that means in terms of diagnosis and treatment, and what we've learned so far about drug development related to cirrhosis, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what success might look like in the future. Cirrhosis is especially important because it's the immediate precursor to severe outcomes like hepatocellular carcinoma, transplant, and death, which means expensive and heartbreaking events, but also because time from initial diagnosis to severe event is an average of three years, often less, and 50% of patients learn they have a problem for the first time when being examined by a doctor for something else. This is the place where we can have the greatest, fastest impact on patient mortality and on patient life satisfaction and happiness. Second issue, it's the one place where the major agencies do not accept surrogate endpoints. Drugs can succeed in cirrhosis without a phase four trial, which means they may have a faster path to full approval and as a result, a stronger position in financial markets. We've already recorded this episode. It combines high value content with an engaging conversation. Don't miss it.
1: Starting in one or two weeks, be on the lookout for questionnaires.
0: I mentioned last week the two issues where we need your input via questionnaire, general directions and major themes over the next few months, and the right way to make live audience a permanent feature of the podcast. Eric and I will be working over the next week or two on the best way to get these posted online as questionnaires and to get the answers compiled. If you subscribe to our advanced podcast newsletter, or if you follow me or the podcast on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter, keep your eye open for a link to questionnaires.
1: Hey, listeners, glad to have you back
0: with us going dark the week of July 4th. and me off for a week. Our download rate was a little soft in the month of July. Last week, with a solid topic, interesting panel, and a special interview with Louise, numbers rebounded spectacularly. Great to have you all back. And with that, I want to thank Arun and Steven for providing so much insightful and fascinating information today. To Louise for bringing a non-KOL perspective and asking some great questions. And as always, to the Surfing Nash crew, Mike, Eric, Polly. We will post the next episode, the one on cirrhosis, on Wednesday, August 25th. As I mentioned, we've recorded the rough cut already, and it's really special. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.
1: Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.